The Myth America podcast, an episode from The Vault, Death of an Era, first broadcast in 2016. ourselves and the world around us. And this morning, I am delighted to have my buddy Chris Hensley here with me. Good morning, Chris. Hey, how are you? Good. Chris is a, a pal who lives here in the Catskills, who also actually works with WIOX Radio, and he is a lifetime music guy. He spent a career working in the music industry in one way or another, including working with Electra Asylum Records, United Artists, then which turned into EMI. He was a senior VP for marketing and artist development at RCA. He's worked, name name an an artist of the 20th century in the rock and roll world, and in all likelihood, Chris has worked with him or her. And we were talking last week about January 10th, the day David Bowie died, and shortly thereafter, a series of other musicians, including Glenn Fry on January 18th, Dallas Taylor, who was the drummer for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And suddenly, it had felt this month, this beginning of 2016, that it's kind of the day the music died, and sort of the end of an era. And so we thought we would talk this morning a little bit with each other and with you about how, how it feels to be sitting, watching this group of artists step on to the next part of their process and away from us. So maybe we should start by grounding this a little bit. Let's talk a little bit, Chris, about the Eagles first, because I know you worked with the Eagles for a number of years, right? I did. I did. I was uh, fortunate. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty ignorant, but I was fortunate. <laughs> I was, I was uh, 23, I graduated from college a couple of years before. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I, I went to school away from there, and I was armed with my my deg- my uh, pre-med degree, and I couldn't afford to go to medical school, so that wasn't going to be a future, and my uh, minor in comparative lit and languages. I did not know this about you. I love this. This is putting all sorts of things into place yeah. for me. Yeah, cool. so there I was, you know, ready to attack the world or break the world. <laughs> I went back home to Charlotte. I... Uh, I had worked at a, as a paramedic for four and a half years uh, while I was in college to help pay for college and in the summers. And uh, in Charlotte, you worked with the police department as part of it. So there I was, you know, supposedly carrying a gun every day while I was paramedic. And this is a frightening image. I, I actually, I got shot. I got Did stabbed. Yeah, I got wow. beaten up a couple of times. It was pretty wild life. But, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18. That's pretty exciting It's stuff. wonderful. You're going to live forever. And in, mm-hmm. in, in your head, where I'm getting to is you're a rock star. Yeah. And what happened was a friend of mine in Charlotte, his father owned a radio station. 
or his uncle owned a radio station, an AM daytime radio station, which back then meant in the winter you signed off at 4.15, right before drive time. And he said, look, as long as you guys don't cost me any money, you can do whatever you want with this radio station. Cool. And this was in the era when progressive radio was just starting to be formed, was just an idea. So we decided we were going to be the first progressive radio station in the South, in Charlotte, North Carolina. WRPL, Ripple, we called it Radio with Balls. (laughs) (laughs) Which you could get away with, uh, I guess. Yes, we could. Uh, Well, we gave away footballs, basketballs, baseballs, that kind of stuff. We didn't have much money. So anyway... um, because we were so early on in exposing, you know, we, we, it was a perfect moment in time. A lot of new artists, the music was changing. You know, our generation was starting to find their voice. Uh, so the station actually achieved a lot more notoriety than probably it deserved based on the signal. And uh, when Electra Asylum <coughs> at the time decided they were going to hire what, was co- what became local promotion people, people whose job was to go manage the markets, get the, ra- get the uh, records played on the radio, manage the artist when they were on tour, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, when that came along, I was actually, they hired me. I was the first local guy hired by Electra Asylum. And I remember getting a call. You know, I, at that point, I, w- I would have taken any job. I was making $50 a week and trading out pizza for food. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we had a conversation. They said, okay, you're hired. And I said, well, what do I do? How does this work? And this is what I heard. I heard, well, uh, I'm not sure. we got to hire everybody else. I'll tell you what. Let me call Irving, and you just go meet the Eagles on the road, and then just hang out with them, and we'll call you when we need you. And you said, oh, uh, Okay. I remember going, and they're paying me for this. <laughs> so there I was, 23, and, uh, you know, this was my first encounter with, you know, the rock world and the rock band. So I was the one of the Eagles. I mean, they embraced me. They were buddies. They took me around with them. We flew to Aspen skiing, you know. I saw backstage. I was, I was there when they were recording some of the albums. I saw all of it. And so it was a great way to start, you know, a career and a life in the music business. Wonderful. Wonderful, but also wanted to be make sure that we had time to talk about this sense of how musicians and pop music, rock and roll in this particular era, capture a sense of identity for a generation and what happens when that starts to change. You know, the, David Bowie has passed, and David's contribution to music in our generation is incalculable. I, I'm not weighing the Eagles versus David Bowie. I just, you know, I've worked with them both, and... You know, I have thoughts on both, but with the Eagles, one of the things that I've come to think about over the last week or so uh, in dealing with this is this this sort of passing of our era of music is that, you know, there were kind of two Eagles, and I think they reflected our generation's journey. There was the the early Eagles, who were the Eagles of the, the sweet harmonies mm-hmm. and the, uh, you know, the, the pretty songs and uh, the production was actually I think the production was so far ahead of its time that 40 years later country music is still catching up with what they were doing they created country rock and the roots of what we think of as modern country music Uh, and so I think that that what happened was is our generation made the transition through life and all the events and things that happened uh, through our eras that the Eagles made that same journey as reflected in their music as they go from that sort of sweet harmony, Southern California, the American dream kind of band 
to the Joe Walsh era, the harder edge, the rock era, the cocaine edge that came into their music and, and what they did. And that, uh, you know, by the end, they were reflecting the dark underbelly of this country, the dark side of the American dream that they, they defined as the California lifestyle. One of the things about Desperado that I like and appreciate it is that was one of the early songs. That was a sweet lament. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was not a later Eagles song, although it's become one of their branded songs. It wasn't even a hit. The album was a stiff until Take It Easy, somebody started playing it radio and it ended up becoming a hit. So Desperado got overlooked. But to me, it's, been, it's always been a song that I appreciate because as I've gone through different ages and periods, and I think everybody kind of has gone through this, Desperado, you have a different sense of who Desperado is and who the character is. When I was young, it, it, when we were all young, it was about rebellion. You know, you were an outlier. You were the rebel. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a cool place to be. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, and I've talked to other people, and they seem to feel this way too, this character is singing about lament and yeah. about loss. Uh, it's about being the last of a breed, uh, the last person left. And it's a sad song in that respect. And I think it reflects part of the journey our generation is making. Yeah, right now, where we are. That, of course, was from the Eagles. And we're talking about the end Eagles. of an era. Eagle, Eagles. He was just telling me, actually, that, that uh, Glenn Fry hated it when they were called the Eagles. He said, no, no, we're Eagles. We're not the Eagles. So that and was from Eagles. Nobody paid attention to that. Everybody. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I, yeah. I can still remember him, though, you know, backstage complaining about it, you know. Tell, tell everybody, tell the radio stations. We're it's eagles. 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 Like Boston yeah. or Chicago. We're Eagles. Yeah. And that, uh, that song just brought tears to my eyes, actually, listening to it in this context. So we're, we're talking this morning about what it feels like to be at what feels like the beginning of the end of an era. And certainly we've lost rock and roll musicians before now. You can list down going down the list from from those who died really young to those who died quite young but suddenly those were aberrations those were people that had medical issues or had accidents or ran into the the horror and the tragedy of substance abuse addiction issues and the the demons the monsters got them and that wasn't that wasn't the norm it was it, they were maybe collateral damage somehow but that wasn't where we were and suddenly with I mean, I was astonished to see that David Bowie was 69. In my head, David Bowie is 30, you know, like me, right? <laughs> I haven't aged and neither, he, he wasn't supposed to either. And I think maybe some of that, and Chris, I'd love for your thoughts on, uh, part of why this feels hard to me is that it, it's a letting go and a recognizing, I think, of our own aging and mortality. Is that, would you say that's true? Yeah, that's what we were talking about the other day. Um, you know, it was funny because this kind of started last week when Lee caught me in a weak moment. One morning, she was, I was, came in the station and we were talking, probably last Tuesday. And, uh, you know, she, I think you asked me about Glenn or something about yeah. Eagles. 
And I got teary. I started tearing up, and I said, "And, and Chris is the ultimate in smart, <laughs> smart, smart in cynicism." So, seeing tears in Chris's eyes is, and I of course went, "Ooh, let's go after this one." But you know, it, what was interesting to me, and I, I, I suspect I'm not the only one out there. I've I've noticed from some other friends I've talked to over the past week or two as as we talk about the death of Bowie and the death of Glenn Fry, which is the death of the Eagles. Uh, you know, I see people get glassy-eyed. I see them get teary-eyed like I did. And it was funny because I didn't expect that. You know, I usually am like, well, you know, they come, they go, you know, this is how it works. Every generation has to make way for the next generation, and that's right, and that's the way it should be. So I think what our conversation was was, what's going on here? What is, what's yeah. the bigger thing that's making us all get this way? And, and I think it's this. I think that, uh, you know, we were a generation that... You know, we, we were the first affluent middle-class generation post-World War II. We were the baby boomers. We were the big generation. We were, for, for right or wrong, for good or bad, we were told we were going to change the world. We owned the world. We changed everything, we believed, to, to varying degrees of success. But we did but that was the goal. have that effect. Yeah. That was the goal. Uh, and... We thought we were either going to live forever or die young. Yeah. There was no there was no past 30 cents. And the artist from that era and the music from that era I think is different and unique from the current pop era in that we saw ourselves reflected in the artist that we grew to like and we got attached to. We saw their journeys. They stood in front of us like the Beatles, the Eagles, David Bowie, they pointed a direction. They told us what was going on. They had political uh, connection to our lives. They had connection to change. Their music tried to be, in, in many cases, was more relevant to our story. And I don't think they always knew they were writing this story. Uh, but what has happened now, I think, is that when you like you said, you know, David Bowie, 69? How, how, how did that be, happen? How was that? You know, <laughs> right? I, I, I wake up days. I'm 63? What happened? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, nobody in their head, your head doesn't age. Your brain doesn't age like your body does. Yeah. And I think that our generation is, this is making us confront the fact. This is our aging process. We all, we all aged a little late, baby boomers. We were a little behind. We, you know, we 50, are the ones saying, right, 50's, 50's the new, the new, this, the and, new you know, 30 and 60's the and new 40. And I think what's happened is that this is, we, we see ourselves in these artists, we have all our lives, and now we see ourselves again as they're passing and what they're saying and what their legacy tells us about how you grow old, how you mourn, and how things change. And, and where you've come from, too. I think you're absolutely right. And I, one of the things that struck me when Bowie died, and I, I liked Bowie, but I was not... Bowie didn't connect for me in the way that, that it, he did for many people. And I was undone by looking at how social media lit up when he died. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, Washington Post article that Chris found by a, a writer named Chris Richards. Uh, and the title is, This is How We Will Say Goodbye to the Rock and Roll Generation. So he really is writing about exactly what we're talking about today. And he, he says, So now with an entire generation of rock boomers approaching the twilight, our society braces for a new era of mourning, a situation that's as dizzy 
dizzying as it is inevitable. Our heroes are about to vanish in great numbers. Our grief is about to become more frequent, more communal, more intense. And he talks about how in our highly, continues, in our highly networked lives, a massive outpouring of grief quickly transforms into a massive outpouring of information. We rush to fill the voids that our icons left behind with a profusion of tributes, assessments, remembrances, and rebukes. And I was struck by how many people, David Bowie, in my community of a thousand or so people that I talk to in Facebook, for example, how many people had stories about what specifically Bowie meant to them as, as an icon, as an image, as an archetype, as a metaphor, what they projected onto him, what they found the courage to do in their lives, how they, as somebody who wore his multiple sense of identity and sense of being always the outsider with such richness and such nuance and such flair and such sort of thumb to your nose, love it or leave it, but here it is. And I think... The Eagles did the same thing in a different way, but he, he was such an icon for that. And I, I was, uh, people that I in a million years, I never would have expected to have this just overwhelming sense of loss about this person because of what he had re- had reflected to them and, and been to them. Were, the stories were extraordinary uh, and, and, and specific. I remember when I was in this situation and he made me feel this way. His music and what he represented as an artist made me feel this way. And I think that the... Certainly there are artists out there that are doing that. And as you were talking, Chris, about sort of the difference between this era of artists and the baby boomers versus the pop music world right now, I think maybe one of the few places where this is still true and and that sense of activism and political connection is in the rap world. But in general, pop music isn't about that anymore. Mm -hmm. No. No, it's not. It's, it's, and, And it's fair. I mean, every generation finds their own music. And the fact that that our kids and grandkids may be rediscovering the 60s, 70s, and 80s music and liking it doesn't mean that that's the music of their life anymore. And I think that's what we have to realize. There's something that happens. I remember research, uh, reading research. There's something that happens in the brain from about eight or nine years old till you're in your late teens, early 20s, where the songs and the music you hear cause changes in your brain, chemical changes that it's it's a form of memory. It creates a memory. So you're telling me we have a generation of people who are being formed by Justin Bieber? This is a frightening thing. Yeah, I mean, thing. it's happening. But you know what? When they're <laughs> 40, 50, 60 years old, they're going to hear, Oh, Baby, Baby by Justin. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to recall. It's, 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 it's like um, uh, Remembrance of Things Past Proust. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's like that. It's that sense of a smell, aroma. A song can bring you back to a previous life. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to read another little quick quote from the, the article, Chris Richards' article, because I think this is appropriate to what we're talking about. He says, As in, isn't this how pop works at its most essential level? A song, whether it's about heartbreak or social strife, invites us into an accessible space where we can untangle our own personal knots involving heartbreak or social strife. In life and in death, pop stars give us opportunities to pursue, to process. And uh, I think that, uh, and, you know, there's an irony here. I'm going to go back to being a little my smart aleck self in that I remember, I don't think these guys all set out to be, be the icons at the end of the day, at the end of our lives that taught us how to process. In many ways, I, I know from personal experience 
they didn't want to wear that mantle, many of these artists. It was put on them reluctantly. Yeah, it's a hard one to carry because it can freeze you. And I've told people this before. I remember having discussions sitting around, you know, shooting the breeze with, uh, with, with the Eagles and talking about what are we going to do when we grow up? What's going to happen when this is all over? What, like, what, what, do, you know, what are we doing? You know, and what, you know, and one of them was, you know, some of them were businessmen. I'm going to go back into my dad's business, but I'm nobody going to run a, a chapeau shop. Yeah, nobody <laughs> had a sense that this was going to last. This yeah. was just a moment in time, and these guys didn't realize it. And there's an irony to me now that's bittersweet in, in realizing that these were the touchstones that guided our lives: the music, what they did, the way they lived, and and one of the things that the that I want to say about the Eagles and Bowie, and I think a lot of these artists is, this was the era, and I say this, I, I learned this lesson for good or bad. They taught me, and I remember, I think it was Don Henley said, you can't let them see you sweat. Mm-hmm. You can't let them see the work that goes behind it. And I remember that, you know, the Eagles were notorious. They would come out on stage. Hi, we're the Eagles from Southern California. They would be wearing old torn-up jeans, T-shirt, look like they just walked, as somebody said one time, it looks like they just finished mowing the lawn and came out. Well, when they would show up at the the, at the uh, at the, the venue, they had nice clothes on. They were the dressed up. They were they were dudes. And so you know, so were all the, most of these artists. They changed into those clothes to present that image. They did not want let the audience know how much work went into it. I I had the honor to be in the studio during part of the recording of Hotel California, and it was just one long argument. Glenn and Don. This note, that note, of versus the, this lyric, this thing, it was ugly. They were arguing, and then, you know, it was fueled by substances, too. But, uh, but you know, at the time, I was like, oh, these guys, ugh. But, I rem- you know, looking back, I realized it was because they were perfectionist. Yeah. They did not miss notes. When you, if you go to their shows, they didn't have bad shows. They were driven. They would yell at each other during the shows off mic. You know, to keep it tight. But that, and, and David Bowie, David Bowie's notorious. He always had the best musicians, the tightest band, the most rehearsed stuff. You know, it, it was, you know, the irony is, you know, rock and roll and rock is kind of sloppy and all over the place and amorphous. But, but the, the source for this stuff, the stuff that drove the, the feeling we have of that, was driven by guys who were pretty much perfectionists, who had to have it right, who want, who knew they had something to say and they wanted to say it. And I think that's what attracted a lot of us in our generation to what they were doing and has, has kept them alive and valid and real for so long is this stuff holds up. You are listening to Miss America. I am your host, Lee Melander. I'm here with Chris Hensley, and we're talking about the death of Glenn Fry, the death of David Bowie, the death of a series of musicians that suddenly have made it real that this generation is facing its own sense of loss and mortality and we're getting old folks i'm a lot younger than chris is but i'm i'm aware that it's coming (laughs) you know the older you get the less the distance between those ages oh yeah 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 shush yes i'm much i'm much too young you know i come from a tradition of women who lie about their ages my grandmother lied about her age so long that she forgot how old she was and she missed out on social security payments for several years so it's a time-honored tradition my mother refers to herself as as my sisters and, and my younger sister and uh convinced my nieces that she was 16 until one of them got to be about 11 and started doing the math so but we're talking about how these artists, these amazing folks that create this soundtrack, 
shape our sense of who we are and who we've been and what happens when they're not here anymore. Chris, why don't you run with that a little bit? Um, you know, I want to go back for a second, too, and, and uh, there's a great quotation. Uh, there's a, a guy whose blogs I follow, uh, Bob Lefsitz, and I want to give him a shout-out. Bob is a, uh, you know, he's sort of a music industry observer, pundit. Uh, he, he, he has rants and raves, and sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't, but I think he nails it more than he doesn't. And, and he's, he's probably getting into his 60s now, too, so he's dealing with a lot of the same issues our, our generation is in terms of how we, at one point or another, wasn't that everybody's anthem? Yeah. We were all life in the fast lane, pushing or, or, it down the road as hard as we it, could. wanting to be, right? Either, either being there or yearning for it as we were living our fairly small lives, that that thing we were dreaming of was the, yeah. Who out there hasn't had at least once Turn that that song up in their car and floored it down the highway. Yeah, come on. Uh, but anyway, he said of that era. He's talking about the summer of '72. He said the guitars came out of the speaker in the dashboard, and in the summer of '72, all of America felt good. Hmm. It was a different country back then, divided for sure, but we still believed we were winners. That if we put our minds to it, we could come out on top. We were never going to be here again, so we opened up and took this great country of ours, lived life to the fullest with the radio blasting all the while. And now it's streaming that's blasting all the while. Things change. Every little piece of this has changed, and this is what our, this is what the teary-eyed friends of mine, I think, are confronting our generation is that, uh, that you know, it's, it's time to accept that uh, our dream is kind of... Reaching at sunset, and that's not, I'm not making a judgment, I'm not saying I don't want it to happen, it has to happen, it has to happen, but uh, it's interesting to watch a generation that was supposedly always going to be young and was about youth, confronting the fact that, that it's, it's starting to go away. And our joints Via hurt, the artist, and, yeah. right? Like, you know, and, and our, our faces are sagging, and, but, but we could be lost. And, think, and thanks, be thank lost. you, David Bowie for not reminding us of the aches and pains. I mean, this is one of, you know, this guy lived his life like the greatest art project ever. He really did. There was, he, he had a million personalities. He was a chameleon, but behind it, the David Bowie that I saw and from what I I read, I know is, is a guy who, who tried to stay real and sincerely interested in what was new and happening and how do you communicate through art and how do you not repeat yourself even to the end. If you listen to his current, album his last album dark star I, I i'm just blown away by how he he finished it right he 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 left us with the thoughts he was having the deep feelings he was having he didn't wear the stuff on his sleeve and press and media and i'm dying and i'm sick and i'm this and i'm that and i'm getting old it was all he put it all out there in his art yeah and, and only in his art. Yes. And I read an article uh, about him recently in this in this just wash of. I, I know more about David Bowie now in these few moments after his death than I did really the entire time he was alive, which is an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. But one of the things I read was at home he was David Jones. He was never David Bowie. He wasn't this persona, this character that, or multiple characters that he created. He wasn't the star man. 
when he was at home. At home, he was a guy and an artist working his craft. And I think for me, that's an important part of all of this, because I think right now we're living in an era where, and certainly there are rock and roll stars from, from this generation that did this, that got caught by their own persona and eaten alive by their own persona, no question. They bought their own hype. Yeah, you know, and and maybe the most you know tragic of those was was uh, uh, Michael. Yes. Um, who who literally ate himself from the inside out and the outside in, but they, I think there was some space. Maybe because media wasn't quite as ubiquitous, maybe because things weren't moving quite as quickly, maybe because the industry wasn't as much of a machine, but there was a sense of awareness of the space between this stage persona and me as an artist. There was there was some space, I think, for many artists at least, and uh, again, I'm sure not all of them, but for me, that there's some there's a nugget in there as I'm processing what that community of artists have brought to the table and what how that's impacted my life and my sense of what the world can be. That they, I, I, There's a sense that you can put this on and take it off in a particular way, right? I, I think this is... When, when, when all this is starting and these acts are all starting, it was all, you know, this is the whole concept of what are we going to do when we grow up? What's your real job? This, it was... It was the fast burn. It was the short burn. There was no. It wasn't about balance. It was. So you could about, go to the back wall because it didn't yeah. matter because you weren't going to do it. And for what's been interesting years. to me is as we've all aged and as time has passed and rock music has sort of sustained, it's been about the balance and the artists that have survived and the artists that have left the best, greatest legacy for the most part are the ones who first knew who they were who had a sense of who they were. And that may be Michael Jackson's problem, you know, is uh, the fact that he never had a chance to, to, to grow up. He lived and, in and a fun house. He lived on stage. Yeah. I mean, so he never had that ability to find out who he was. Yeah. Uh, guys like Glenn Fry, guys like Don Henley, guys like David Bowie knew who they were, and they knew who what their image was. And that balance, I think, helped them survive. I mean, it's that whole thing, like I said, of the Eagles. You know, they knew when they came on stage, they would go, you know, before the show, they put on the jeans and did, the T-shirt. Did they talk about that with you? Is that something that you guys discussed? We never talked you? about it. I just, just you saw. were aware of it. Yeah. You know, they, they were, <laughs> you know, when you, when you go into a meeting with, the, with those guys or the studio or anything, you never knew where there was going to be a, a, a fun day. Or a buzzsaw. <laughs> I mean, you know, Glenn and Don are notoriously for arguing, I think, for the right reasons. They were, they, they both, uh, they had, a, they had a, a similar goal, but they both brought little different things to it so that, that then they were perfectionists. But to them, that goes back to it. They knew who they were. They knew what they wanted to say. This was their work. You know, in, in the best sense of yeah. the word work, David Bowie understood that he had a private life. He wasn't David Bowie, the star in his private life. He couldn't ma- you could maintain that balance and, and have a good existence. You know, he, he recognized this was his job. This is his work. He's an artist. So as an artist, there's his work may be more interesting than some other people's work. But they, they had that about them. Uh, one of the things about David, and I've told this story before, and I said I'm, I'm getting tired of hearing myself say it, but I guess I'll do it one more time. Yeah, do it one more time. Uh, one of the things about, about Bowie that was similar to the Eagles, as dissimilar as they were as artists, was that they both, they both backstage and in meetings and stuff were 
understood business, we're focused on business, we're real people. We're real guys. You could talk to Glenn about growing up in Detroit and doo-wop and, you know, those kind of things. You could have those conversations. The other artists I've been with, you can't. They're so caught up in their own image. You have to sort of get to them by getting to, the, you know, getting to them through that image they had in their head. With David, um, one of the tours that I was on was uh, the Serious Moonlight Tour. And that was one of the first tours where I saw an act. He did this technique where he would stay multiple nights in one major market in a hotel room, and then each evening he would go to the secondary markets, but then either fly back or drive back so he could stay in one place for a while. So it was a much more civilized tour. It was very nice, you know, it was mellow. He, uh, every evening, he traveled with a sushi chef. So every evening after the show, you were invited up to uh, David's suite and you know, whoever were, were the folks in town, the celebrities or personalities would be in there and everybody would be talking and you'd eat sushi. And one of the things that I, looking back, realized is every night whenever I walked up there, walked in the suite, the first thing I had to do was figure out where David was because I couldn't find him because he, he shrunk his ego. He didn't yeah. have the ego that you go, you walk in and you go, there's I'm David. Here. Yeah. It was like sometimes I would lose him. Like, is David even here? Is he here? And he'd be over the corner maybe having a conversation or whatever. But he wasn't the life of the party. He wasn't the, the star. Um, he was overpowered. Um, I, this, is, this is the story. So in D.C., um, after the show that night, I, I went up to the suite or whatever I had to do. I went up to the suite. I knocked on the door. And I may have been a little off balance at the moment. Uh, I knocked on the door, and I was kind of looking down the hallway, and the door opens, and I turn around figuring it would just be one of the band guys or something, and I look, and it's Liz Taylor. And, and I got to tell you, all, all I could see were those violet eyes, mm. you know. And she goes, hi. And I go, uh, uh, and she goes, I'm Liz. And she introduces herself. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. <laughs> I got that part. <laughs> and then she goes, and who are you? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'm Chris. I'm with the label and stuff. She takes my hand. She says, come on in. She sits me down next to her. And for an hour, she focused just on me. And I don't think that was me. I think that's the, the, the spirit of David Bowie is that he allowed people to be themselves or to be able to be themselves. She wasn't Liz the star. She was Liz just hanging out. How cool. And, and I saw that over and over with the other celebrities and people. Ego didn't work in his circle like that. He, it didn't work with him. And, uh, and I, again, this goes to why are we drawn to these people? Why do they mean so much to us now? And I don't want to sound like, a, like an old guy because I'm not saying that music now is not as good because it is. It's, it's as creative. It's as vital. It, it's even more vital than ever because of the Internet. But I wonder if these songs have the same meaning and connection as time passes to to people's lives as they grow older maybe it does but i don't know i yeah. don't know you know It'd be interesting know. too in our dotage check in with the yeah. folks who are 20 to 30 years younger than us and see when they're at this moment what they feel well and it's so you know it's so sophisticated now the machine it's yeah. marketing there's a story every artist has a story it's crafted it's you know here's the hook you know here's what they're about and that didn't happen back then. It, yeah. it happened more organically. You know? And even, I know, I was working with a youth foundation in California for a number of years, and we were doing, we had a youth, uh, we had a, a, a media group that we, that the students were learning how to do media, and we, we it was a revenue-generating tool for this nonprofit. It was a very cool thing. Very gr- talented young group of, of uh, teenagers working on graphics and ad campaigns and learning about that for community businesses. But one of the things that we did some research into was sort of how movements got 
born in that era. And what we discovered was that that was really when MTV was hitting hard and all of the the media, the television media particularly, that was really specifically geared towards teenagers. There was a huge machine at that point that had emerged. And so kids in an area would start something. Something would emerge sort of organically out of a group of kids expressing themselves creatively, thinking about sort of how rock and roll started, how different sounds started in different cities. And the, the kids owned it. Well, in this era, there were scouts out for MTV and the major media outlets who were finding these trends even before the kids themselves were identifying what they were. And they had taken Taken them, packaged them, shaped them, and were selling them back to the teenagers. I know, I know those people who were doing that. So, and <laughs> they were brilliant, that. right? And, and you I, know, it was the way it was the development of marketing, but it was uh, it was a little, you know, it was cynical. And I it, think that that's part cynical. of why millennials are harder to market to and advertise yeah. to because yeah. they they recognize that because they've been cynical. sold to since they were two, and and whatever they started to come up with that felt like it was theirs, it got taken away and then given back to them with a price tag attached, yeah. with all of their rough edges. And thinking about what how different this would have been, and uh, I think one of the last eras before this really started to happen was the grunge era. Thinking about what would have happened had Cobain's work been. As, and it ended up happening, but but they had a few years where it got to be this voice of these disaffected kids, uh, you know, that particular cut of of kids in the United States before it became, you know, turned into Saved by the Bell somehow, right? Well, you know, also, you know, our, our tribes are getting smaller. I yeah. mean, they're, they're, the fan bases are there. The fans are there. Music is there. Music is vital. There are more musicians than ever making music and getting it out of the Internet. They may not be making as much money as they, they could in the past, but they're, they're out there. It's a healthy, you know, the music business is not healthy. Music is healthy. Yeah. But the tribes are smaller. You know, kids are fine in their groups, but their, their fan bases are smaller. There are and they're, less niching, and less, they're niching more. Aren't yeah, they, they call yeah. them unicorns now. There are fewer and fewer unicorns. The big stuff, you know, that sort of aggregates everybody under one umbrella you know when when during this era because there wasn't internet there wasn't sophisticated marketing as much and everything you know there the you know a generation sort of got behind this stuff it was our generation's music i don't know as much if there's a generational music anymore there are tribes music yeah i think you're right and i think that there's that that's part of the difference in how it's shaped and this is maybe the 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 non-shadowed version of given how music is accessible now you can create your own soundtrack in a way that when the radio stations and the the world of payola and you know they they defined they defined what I don't you were know nothing hear. about payola yeah right I yeah. just want to go on record now <laughs> With the FCC and saying, I have no recollection of it was any, a myth. It was a myth. I don't know anything about payola. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> so now that we've established that, but I think that that's so. There's there's something gained and something lost. I think in that, and so it may be that it, twenty thirty years from now, when the the artists who are now hitting their 40s start to die as David Bowie has died, as Glenn Frey has died, there may not be the same reaction because there isn't necessarily as broad as broad a a, a, a platform a that platform shares the similar experience. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, 
Interesting. You know, look at our look at the fragmentation of where we get music now. You know, streaming is the primary source for kids to discover new music. In YouTube, uh, is is sort of replaced radio in many ways. Is where people discover their music and their new acts. Uh, although there's some argument about that, but I think it's radio, traditional radio, clinging a little bit to you know their past model. But there's uh, you know the, these. These small groups of people are, are finding their own soundtracks. Uh, what, what I was going to say was like with Sirius and XM, if you look at them, they're a perfect example. Look at how many uh, channels they have that yeah. are broken down. And, and they're a mass media. Yeah. You know, and yet still, you know, you can find your little niche format channel that you listen to. But then when you turn to your friend and go, oh, I love that. You may say, I love The Loft. They may go, oh, I'm an underground garage fan. They may overlap and share some music together. But everybody's got, like you say. And then you head into Pandora, and it's even more so. Well, this is the age of personalization and yeah. individuality, and, you know, everything can be customized for you, and that reflects, too, on music. But I wonder, I don't feel like there's a generational uh, breadth there that we had in the past so it's changed the quality of music and pop music and how you market and how you sell it and who the artists are and what happens i mean adele you know adele has probably as much credibility right now as any artist and she's what you know i would call a unicorn one of those few things that sort of spikes up that everything attracts around but it's it's driven by a very calculated marketing campaign very calculated image none of it is organic or grassroots i believe yeah. Uh, and nothing against that. That's how it works these days. She's got a brilliant voice, and she's a beautiful singer, and she writes songs. Yeah, and she writes good songs, good hooky songs that you remember that yeah. that connect. Yeah, you know, I could go down a whole other road about how Mariah Carey and artists like that with, with their beautiful diva voices dis- destroyed the pop song oh. because it's 100 miles per hour from the first note yes. to the end. There's yes. no dynamics it's, anymore. Yeah. It's you know? all full volume yeah. with as many yeah coloratura runs as possible. Yeah, yeah. So, so as we're thinking about this and as thinking about coming back to we we've lost two of the big pieces of the soundtrack that you grew up with that I grew up with that our generation grew up with and I think get ready there's more coming there's more coming and and this is the beginning this is the beginning of this and going again going back to the Chris Richards article in the Washington Post uh, the article is entitled, This is How We Will Say Goodbye to the Rock and Roll Generation. He writes, when our rock and rollers disappear, we mourn their youth, their vitality, the sense of possibility that their entire generation represented. We mourn the beautiful futures that they promised us, and we calculate our role in the failure of those futures to materialize. We mourn what didn't unfold, the album that never got made, the concert we didn't buy a ticket for. And so I think we are mourning our own loss and we are mourning the things we didn't do as much as the things that they didn't do. And I think in the few minutes that we have left, I'd love to do two things. Uh, one is play Lazarus, which is this extraordinary tune that David Bowie made in this last year of his life, knowing that he was dying of cancer from his album Black Star. And talk about that just for a couple minutes before we put it on. To me, what a move as an artist to, and you referred to this a little bit earlier, Chris, that here's a guy who knew he was ill. He knew he, his, you know, we're all terminal on some levels, but he had a sense of immediacy coming and his choice was to make art. And what do you think he was trying to say in that moment to us? Here's, here's the way I look at it. If the best pop stars or the, the best idea of a pop star is someone who, 
stands ahead of the pack and points the direction mm. to go. David did that. Is doing that to the end and beyond. And beyond. He is the star man. Yeah. And I, I, it's hard for me to talk about Lazarus without getting a little choked up because there. I think this is a, a brilliant piece of work. I don't think he compromised. I don't think it's got any self pity in it. I think it's yeah. it's uh, it's helping all of us if we think about it, process and understand what's going on out there. And so that's why I think this is an important song. Fabulous. Chris Hensley, thank you so much for joining us today. I invite you to think about your own sense of the art that you're making in the time that you have left. so much for joining me today. Myth America is sponsored by Spillian, a place to revel in the Catskill Mountains of New York. You can find out more about Myth America, Spillian, and me at mythamericaradio.com. Please stop by and share your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Network.